2: Hello
0: and welcome to the History Extra podcast from BBC History Magazine, Britain's best selling history magazine. I'm Ellie Hawthorne. The guest on today's podcast is the historian and historical consultant Professor Ryan Lavelle. Ryan's written a new book about rebellion and revolt in early medieval England and France. Our content director, Dave Musgrove, caught up with him to find out more.
3: Today I am joined by Ryan Lavelle, who is professor of early medieval history at the University of Winchester and a regular contributor to BBC History Magazine and to our lecture programme. And he's been on this podcast before, so uh, so a familiar voice to some of you. Uh, his latest book is *Places of Contested Power: Conflict and Rebellion in England and France, 830 to 1150 AD*, uh, published uh, just now in August by Boydell. So uh, Uh, So, available to read. Um, And we're going to have a chat about that and some of the themes that he's looking at in that. So, Ryan, thank you for joining us.
4: Oh, thank you very much. It's a pleasure to speak to you, Dave.
3: Good, good stuff um so uh firstly i guess uh we should uh, g- i should give you an opportunity to just try and explain broadly what you're trying to do with this uh piece of research it's as, as the title suggests it's about rebellions rebellions against authority during this period uh and and particularly seen through the lens of place and and where things happen so uh you can obviously describe it much better than me you wrote the book but uh so so what's what's the what's the central thesis
4: what sort of got me thinking about this was the the description of uh a, a particular rebellion in uh, mid eleventh century Normandy uh, by um, the uncle of William the Conqueror, and the, the the castle in which this this rebellion took place, la in in Normandy, was described as a, a place of madness, a rampart of madness. And it, it sort of struck me that actually that madness is is probably the wrong description, and and that it's a a very clear set of reasons, or, 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 or to contemporaries at least, there must have been a, a, a very clear set of reasons for, for those kinds of choices of, of decisions. So what I was trying to do was, was probe into, into those, that, that sort of process of decision making and those, those sorts of processes of, of actions uh, through the power of place.
3: Okay. So and and I guess we should uh just dip into the context a bit here so as you've mentioned there uh the the period sort of leads up to to the to the Norman conquest I guess and then is it a, is it a time of particular uh revolt and uh, and and rebellion?
4: It seems to be. Yes, it's you know I it it's very much a a kind of picture of the uh the the sort of what we might call the the late, early, middle ages, so to speak, and uh, leading up to the the what's becoming known by historians as the Central Middle Ages, uh, as a as a period of um, of conflict, as a period of, of contested power, and uh, there are lots of examples. and And while I was writing the book, I was keeping a, just a little black book of whenever I came across an example of. Uh, of of rebellion or, or contested power, uh, I was I was writing down the location and the context and the source, and it it, it got full pretty quickly. Uh, I I can't put a, a sort of number on it off the top of my head, but it's uh, you know there's a lot of things going on as as you might expect, and I think it's it's partly because these um, these political realms, these polities, were in a a state of. A flux at, at many times uh, during the the period from the 9th to the twelfth centuries, and uh, sort of geographically, they're comparatively small. Quite often, the uh, the dukedoms or the kingdoms sometimes are, are comparatively small, and uh, it because of the the sort of tight knit nature of uh, political links between members of ruling families because ruling families might uh, might have close associations with um you know their, their kin group and rely on their kin group to uh, to rule it's it's often possible for um for there to to be uh, contested power basically at, at this time and and these these kind of conflicts frequently come in, and uh, it's it's basically for for members of the political class. It was this was the the sort of predominant means of um, of basically making opposition known uh, where where the, where where power is contested. Basically,
3: I, I suppose one question is is what exactly do we mean by rebellion? When was a rebellion not a rebellion? And, and who was rebelling against who?
4: I attempted to do a, a whole chapter on the, the idea of um, trying to categorise different types of rebellions and, and revolts. And, and I'm still not satisfied with, with what I came up with, but it was the best that I could do, really. Because rebellion is a is a term which is used by um the people who are rebelled against by uh, it's 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 often used in order to denigrate political opponents as as much as it is you know quite often very often in fact the the people who are contesting power are, are not admitting to to being rebels and uh, quite often a rebellion is an unsuccessful seizure of power and f- frequently we don't actually see uh the you know frequently somebody who who might have seized power becomes the the kind of legitimate authority themselves and and so signs of references to rebellion the classic case i suppose with a, an insurrection is the carolingian royal family who ruled western europe for um basically a couple of centuries so the you know the the sort of sense of them as as rebels as um as as insurgents as is effectively, you know, really played down. Um so that's that's one of the things. So quite often, you know, we we know rebellion when we see it, but it's it it's quite difficult to uh to categorize. But it what I found myself doing increasingly was looking at considering it to be political opposition. And once I realized that I wasn't necessarily always able to to kind of get my fingers onto rebellion per se then by looking at things in terms of opposition and political opposition and and uh, often violence uh, opposition whether the threat of violence or actual violence it became a bit easier to try to uh, to try to sort that out and so you've got this this whole sort of range of of different types of political opposition, from opposition within the royal family, from members of a royal family who might be somewhat discontented and uh unhappy about the the lots and sort of chafing for for political power, uh, through to um members of members of the aristocracy who 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 might uh sort of feel a particular grievance about a particular piece of land or or a um a, a particular castle for example or um and sometimes a, a kind of confederation of of those political opponents and uh, then in in some other examples uh, there are there are um peasants revolts as well and, and those are not particularly frequent before about the 12th century but, uh, but you know they they still happen as well so it's about a whole whole kind of spectrum of uh, of political opposition that i was i was trying to uh, trying to look at
3: okay brilliant um so let's uh, let's now just try and laser in on a, on a couple of examples um and to, to get a sense of the way that you've attempted to understand them so i'd like to talk about um Godwin's revolt against Edward the Confessor in 1050 1052 and the earls revolt against King William in 1075 um, so let's let's go to the first one to the to the 1050 52 crisis um can you just um can you just drop us into that story tell us what's going on who Godwin was why he was disaffected and just a, a very brief um uh, overview of, of how things played out
4: Yeah, so the 1050 to 1052 crisis is is an absolutely fascinating sort of crux point, if you like, at the the end of Anglo-Saxon England. And uh, it's a a point where you've got this very powerful Earl in England uh, who was related to the the previous dynasty, the the dynasty of Canute, and he's uh, related to Edward the Confessor as well, who was king uh, prior to 1066, as I'm sure most people are, uh, are aware of. And um, Godwin was the um, the. Basically, the the father in law of, uh, of of King Edward. The crisis has, has, has basically emerged through the uh, the succession to the Archbishopric of of Canterbury, where the Godwin and his his family wanted their particular candidate to become the Archbishop of Canterbury, and um, Edward the Confessor had had wanted a a Norman uh, figure, uh, Robert of Jumièges, to to become the the Archbishop, and um. Edward's policy was effectively to have uh, to to use his um connections with the the clergy and with uh, with abbots as effectively providing his his political links within the kingdom having been a uh, an exile from the kingdom for um for most of his his youth and uh, much of his adulthood and so you've got this, this sort of tension between this very well established um Earlish dynasty, this, this very well established magnate family and um and the king and effectively the the, the kind of flashpoint it emerges as a result of um, both the tensions from there and from the arrival of uh, Edward's uh, brother-in-law Eustace of Boulogne in Dover in, in 1050 and uh, it, sorry in 1051 and this um this resulted in the uh the the killing of uh some townspeople in of Dover and and some of the uh, the the retinue of Eustace and um, uh, this was probably the result of of Eustace having come into Dover in a kind of quasi entry ceremony in this this kind of sense that he had some authority over this town which was part of Godwin's earldom and you've got this this. Kind of moments of of political violence with, by the townspeople of uh, of Dover against the uh, the incoming um, incoming French, the not Normans of of course uh, from from Boulogne, and um, Edward orders that uh, that Godwin punish the townspeople of Dover, and uh, there's a refusal, and this this basically becomes a, a flashpoint, and Edward. Orders Godwin and his family to come to an assembly in Gloucestershire, and, and what I've found really interesting is that the assembly places were um, of political uh, uh, were of particular political importance because assemblies were uh, the, the the kind of political centre point of of the uh, Anglo-Saxon kingdom of many early medieval kingdoms, in fact, and Godwin's refusing, but. In turn, he's holding his own political assembly at another meeting point, uh, just nearby. And this this kind of way of holding assemblies, of holding rival assemblies, is part of the the kind of language of of rebellion and and opposition. And there's a standoff, basically, and and. Uh, as a result, of, as a result of a refusal to come to another assembly in London, uh, Godwin was exiled from the kingdom, and different members of the the, the Elish, uh, families of Godwin, his um, his sons Tossi and, um, and and uh, Harold, they they go off to to different places around the the, the sort of North Sea region. Harold to Ireland. Uh, Tosti to Flanders, Godwin to to Flanders as well, and 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 basically they raise fleets and and there's this incredibly well coordinated campaign in 1052 of the the Godwin family, the Godwin affiliation, basically sort of coming back into the 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 coast of England and travelling across in these. These fantastic ships that they must have had uh, at the time. There's enormous attention and enormous energy is 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 spent on on building these these really high quality vessels, and and these are this is basically a Viking campaign uh, by the the Godwin family going to royal estates and uh, sacking royal estates and, and and getting supporters across the south coast of England, and then they 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 meet and if you put if you piece together the different accounts in the anglo-saxon chronicle the different contemporary manuscripts of the anglo-saxon chronicle you can basically piece together the movements of this fleet across the south coast and the um the upshot is that uh the edward the confessor is, is is basically you know needing to save face in this situation because there are also other earls in in england who who support him and whose position is served by uh serving edward and and they they come together um and there is a there's a kind of military naval um you know, armies and, and 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 naval forces standing off against each other on the river thames uh, in in 1052 and this this kind of fleet action which almost results in this exceptionally bloody battle and then wiser heads prevail basically and it I mean it kind of strikes me as a as a bit of a negotiationary tactic um, on the part of the the Godwins in order to to basically return to the kingdom in a in a sort of greater state than they had had previously been in and using force and the threat of force to to kind of return themselves to this this status quo ante that they that they'd been at but you know, ratcheted up a, a bit more with a, a, a sort of greater sense of um, of dominance over the kingdom. So Edward, in in trying to save face, has to give ground effectively. Um, but but I suppose crucially that s- civil war, you know, what what could be outright civil war was was never quite uh, reached in in 1052.
3: Okay, so um, so that's uh, that's a really interesting summation of the events there. I suppose, and you've mentioned places quite a few times there, from Dover to these assembly places in Gloucestershire. Um, how imp- how important were the places involved, and how was your um, your, your methodology of looking at, the, at, at this event through places uh, helped you to understand it?
4: So looking at this this particular event I uh, was looking at the 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 landscape of the the hundred assembly points uh, a place called Langtree in Gloucestershire and uh, sort of mapping it out and, and looking at it in terms of uh, the, the land holdings in the area and the, the kind of influence of the, the Godwin family in that region and, and thinking about the history as well of, of that region so thinking about the, the place in, in terms of its, of, of its regional importance it's close to Sherston which was the, the site of a, a battle um, less than 50 years earlier actually much less than 50 years earlier within within their lifetime in fact uh, a battle which had, had been fought between Edmund Ironside and and Canute and it's um it's got this this kind of um sort of later history associated with it as this being the point when Earl Godwin took service with Canute and, and whether that's whether that's necessarily true or not some something is important about the um the significance of of that landscape of that that area uh, with the uh, the Godwin family and there's a there's a kind of history as as well associated with the um with that earlier generation because there had been a a point when um somebody had or, or or two of the um, the important thanes associated with the the royal family had been summoned to an assembly in Oxford during the the lifetime of Ethelred the Unready, uh, Edward the Confessor's father. They had been summoned to an assembly and murdered. And the widow of one of those thanes who was murdered was brought to Malmesbury, which is very close to Sherston is very close to this this kind of landscape so these these are places which have meaning to the godwin family godwin has links with this um this previous generation as well and and so it has a has a kind of history so so in a sense what is what it's about is is looking at the you know the the sort of deep history if you like of of these sites the the things that have meaning and significance to um uh to those places and doing a certain amount of mapping as well and and, and trying to trying to identify the locations identifying the locations where um the, where the, the 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 kind of military attacks the the naval attacks took place those sorts of um those sorts of things are are, are part of the the methodology really
0: Still to come on the History Extra podcast. But to take
4: to take wealthy off uh, right down the high street and right up the hill would have been raising clamour in itself. It was a very public act, and it's a, there's a kind of theatricality behind execution.
2: Connect with a licensed therapist by text, phone or video call. Start the process in minutes and switch therapists anytime. Let it out with BetterHelp. Visit betterhelp.com slash history extra today to get 10% off your first month. That's P.com slash history extra.
3: So this idea of places with meaning is, is fascinating isn't it because you're obviously you're you're coming at it from from the uh, from, from, from uh, with, the, with the benefit of hindsight as a historian you're looking back and seeing that uh, that the places were connected but how far were the people then aware I mean you know was was Godwin and co aware of the significance of these places and and uh, and, uh, and why they might have uh, been important why they might have been chosen for for these sorts of events
4: Yes, I suppose we could say that from a, a, a kind of point of hindsight, we you know what we do as historians is, is sort of look back on this um, this sort of time tunnel and then you know in looking at this all these all these pieces sort of clipped together in a way that may not have been the case for contemporaries. But I think we have to work on the the assumption that with these these kind of links within a sort of generational memory, I think these these links do have have some meaning that uh, that that they're aware of the the histories that uh, places like Hundredal Assembly Points are are places where history is told. They, these are places where um, within the landscape they have the 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 meaning. So so Lang Tree Hundred has this this meaning of this this tree, the the long tree uh, associated with it. We don't know what that that history is that particular point of the history, but the the place names and the um the the stories are are what. Um, what could be this this kind of um, this oral history that that's associated with these um, these places? This sort of um, foggily remembered past, in a in a way um, associated with the um, the um, with the landscape and um, people tell stories, and that that's part of it is that the, the sort of storytelling and the, um, the the sort of memories associated with the storytelling get you know get get passed on and and these these places develop uh, an importance so you know what what is simply a dot on the map to us is is something with with real meaning that the the, the kind of processes of moving to that site of of you know of, of trudging across the landscape or, or traveling on horseback to that site has a has a meaning in itself as a as a as a kind of um meaning of of storytelling of generational meaning of 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 making these these connections so you know godwin is is remembering this this past associated with with his family and uh with the uh with the english kingdom only a a generation or so before but beyond that it has this this sort of longer term meaning as well
3: Yeah, I mean that's I guess that's a, the nub of it and part of why your approach is very interesting to try and get a sense of of, of the meanings that these places would have had. Should we um should we, should we trot on to to the other uh, rebellion that I wanted to talk about? Um, which was uh, the uh, the 1075-76 one, uh, the earls' revolt against uh, King William. So this moves us on beyond the Norman Conquest uh, to to the period when uh, the Normans are in power and uh, and the English, the Anglo Saxons, are uh, are potentially looking to uh, to challenge that. So so again, give us a little sense of uh, of what's going on in that particular moment. <laughs>
4: So it, yes, in in 1075, there's uh, you know what what could be called the the, the final English revolt against uh, William the Conqueror, uh, who's you know pretty well established in in England by this stage. There've been a, a series of of revolts uh, up until um, 1071, and uh, it, effectively there've been a, a relative period well a relative period of calm anyway um but uh this I suppose the difference with the Earl's Revolt is that only one of the main protagonists was English; the other two um, were Norman and, uh, and Breton. Uh, so you've got Ralph de Gael, who was a, a Breton but was the Earl in East Anglia, and uh, you've uh, got uh, Roger de Breteuil, who was a, a lord in, in Normandy as well as uh, being the uh, the Earl in, in Herefordshire. And then the, the third figure is Waltheof, who was uh, a, a member of the, well, effectively, a member of the Northumbrian aristocracy, actually, as, as, you know, I suppose we could call him a member of the English aristocracy, but he, he had Northumbrian links. His uh, father was Earl Seward, who was um, one of Canute's men, or who had been one of Canute's men in the north uh, bef- before be, um uh, kind of being Earl in Northumbria during um, Edward the Confessor's reign as well, and um, Waltheof hadn't actually been the Earl of Northumbria because um, he'd been passed over for um, uh, Tostig, who I we, who I'd mentioned earlier, actually one of the the, the Godwin clan. And um, he he'd been too young at the the time of succession to the uh, the Northumbrian earldom in the ten fifties, uh, but he had links with the the English royal family. He had links with the, the pre-conquest English royal family, and I think this is the dynamic. Really, is that these these earls were um, members of. Uh, members of the aristocracy who were sons of a previous generation so off is is the son of a very successful Northumbrian earl and uh Roger was the the son of William Fitz Osborne, and uh, William Fitz Osborne had had basically been William the Conqueror's right-hand man and had this enormous influence, uh, which kind of stretched across from uh, Western England across into the the Welsh marches. And... uh, it's similar the case for, for Ralph de Gael. And uh this I mean this this has been recognized by, by historians for um for some years, that 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 kind of sense of um dissatisfaction. But I think that that sort of theme of dissatisfaction is important in, in trying to trying to kind of recognize the um the kind of the dynamics in in 1075 and there, there was a plot, and uh, there was there was a plot, at in in England, the nature of which gets played up to the point of a view of of saying, well, it was a plot to replace William as king to, you know, to take over the kingdom. But uh, in these situations it's not always the case this isn't uh, necessarily the case with with these rebellions rebels aren't aren't really revolutionaries that they they have um they often have aims to to draw attention to their their state of dissatisfaction uh rather than necessarily trying to try to overthrow the established order but it's seen as treason and the plot becomes, revealed at a a wedding feast in Exning in in Cambridgeshire uh, in 1075, which was a a wedding for um, uh, Ralph de Gale to marry the sister of, of Roger. And it was a it was a marriage that uh, William wouldn't give his approval for. And uh, this is a dynamic in early medieval politics, the the, uh, the refusal by a king to give a sense to a, a marriage for, for political reasons. And uh, so I think there is this, this kind of sense of the wedding itself being a an act of defiance, or at least that's the way I read it, um, because that, that wedding that that marriage effectively gave a, a a kind of sense of of coalition of political um grounding to um uh to the certainly to to um ralph and to william and it it becomes on you know it becomes unstuck and uh, that The Anglo-Saxon Chronicle portrays this in a in a sort of sense of tragedy because Waltheof is, um, um, Waltheof was was married to the niece of William the Conqueror, and she was a figure who um, that according to the 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 kind of way it's it's told, she's the figure who 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 sort of you know forces Waltheof to. to give it up basically to 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 lose his his position and um uh, it's you know it's this sort of sense of betrayal and and so in in later retellings this this then becomes uh, told as um uh, from a misogynistic point of view as the the wife's betrayal of um of the the earl and um walthy offered well it 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 seems that Waltheof may have got cold feet uh, from this and uh, and and gone to uh, Lanfranc, the archbishop, the then Archbishop of, of Canterbury, to reveal the plot. William, at this time, King William was was not in England at, at this point, and there is this this kind of sense of the rebellion being. Um, uh, against agents of the king rather than against the the king himself so whether wealthy office is, is kind of actively involved in the rebellion once things actually kick off to a, a point of view of uh, of violence because uh, uh roger was uh in, involved in in what were evidently some skirmishes in in the west country and um ralph was involved in in some skirmishes well what what basically become a became known as a, a battle, uh, at least in, in terms of the, the way it's recorded by a twelfth century chronicler, Audrey Vitalis, of a, a battle at a place called Fayaduna, uh, which was a, a place a little place called Forden in Cambridgeshire. Uh it, it it comes to uh you know it comes to a head. Were the agents of the king, uh the the you know, the 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 people who are um holding the authority on on behalf of the king come into direct conflict with the um, uh, with the rebels and and it it becomes a, a point with with bloodshed so place has another important element in this story which is not far from from where I am on uh, in in Winchester so it's, it's a uh, Saint Giles's Hill, which overlooks the city of Winchester, and this was where Waltheof was executed in May 1076. And Orderic Vitalis sort of says that, uh, that, that that King William wasn't the the person who ordered this to happen; that this was a result of the uh, the kind of jealousies of the uh, the Norman aristocracy. Um, but this is. This is basically a, a royal order of execution, and uh, the this is something which was done in order to make a point, to make to very deliberately make a political point, and executions of rebels are comparatively uncommon uh, in the, the the period that I, I looked at. It does happen. Um, uh, it, it happens in in Francia, for example, and um, but quite often that royal forgiveness or. or um, um, some some form of agreement uh, takes place, as we see with uh, with Godwin and uh, Edward the Confessor. But maybe that was what uh, Waltheof was was hoping for. But he was in prison for for quite some time. But I think there's a a very legalistic dimension to this that William has to be doing the right thing. That he has to be agreeing the right thing. That he uh, that it has to be um, properly done. But at the end of the day, this was a royal demonstration of power the king was demonstrating his power in doing this and uh it's i think it's really interesting if you if you Look at from St. Giles's Hill, you can see the the Royal Castle of Winchester or what would have been the Royal Castle of, of Winchester. There's a very clear view between the two sites, and the account of Orderic's exe- uh, the account of by Orderic of Waltheof's execution is that uh, Waltheof was taken at the crack of dawn, uh, taken from uh, prison up to St. Charles's Hill. Uh, And that this was done whilst the people slept uh, so as not to raise clamour. But to take to take wealthy off uh, right down the high street and right up the hill would have been raising clamour. In itself it was a very public act and it's a, there's a kind of theatricality behind execution uh, and and of course this is a you know royal executions is a is a topic it's a fascinating topic in itself but I think this is one of these cases where because of the connection with the rebellion the the landscape and the the, the sort of sense of uh, authority that's going on this reassertion of authority that's going on here is is particularly important and it was a, a particularly important moment for, uh, for William
3: So from what you're saying It sounds like people here were, were very deliberately using landscape Or at least thinking about place as very much part of their actions Is that, is that a fair assessment of, of what you're identifying here?
4: Oh, absolutely yes. So people, people using landscape has been a big part of my my work for um, the last uh, twenty years or so. Actually, um, it wasn't something which I'd, I'd totally appreciated once. You know, when I originally started looking at it, but I, I, I began my um, my postgraduate career by looking at uh, at royal estates in in Wessex, and then looking at at warfare and the, the sort of the landscape dimension of warfare very much came in and then these these sort of places of contested power are not always out and out battles but they're the places where effectively a battle might take place but the places where people are, are, are kind of acting out this political theater and uh the the choice of the site and the the landscape around them and the, the places that they're looking at as well and uh these these all play an important role in the uh the, the kind of Political theater, uh, theater of of the time.
3: So, just um, sort of wrapping up with a few more general themes about um, about rebellion. Um, you've talked a lot about uh, about how how it transpired and what sort of people were involved. But how generally was rebellion viewed in this period was it Was it seen as a, a negative thing? Was it like really frowned upon to take action against an established ruler?
4: So. Y- yeah, I mean, there, there are there are cases where there is this this sort of sense of a of a ruler who um, has some some sense of illegitimacy in, in terms of their actions, but actions are often against the agents of the king rather than the the, the king himself. Um, but uh, rebellion is, um, it's not you know, it's not not always a a bad thing or you know it's it's not always perceived as a bad thing in 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 this period um but you know in in, in some cases it 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 really depends on the the outcome of the the situation it depends on the the negotiation it depends on a, a whole number of uh, of of different factors
3: Okay, so finally, uh, I suppose you've talked about this a bit before, actually, about how rebels were treated, about how the difference between Walter's treatment and, and Godwin's treatment, uh, and you know, one of them uh, ending much worse than the other. So, so how what was the general reaction to rebels? Did it entirely depend on circumstances? You get some of them being uh, executed or mutilated, whereas others are sort of forgiven and uh, and seem to do quite well out of uh, out of their revolt.
4: Yes, yeah, it absolutely depends on the uh, the circumstances and uh, in a sense the political standing of the um the the figure the the ruler who is being rebelled against and uh, in effect yes you, you get this uh, mutilation some of the um rebels of of 1075 were were mutilated or maimed not the um well uh, Roger um L. Roger and uh, L. Ralph were um, well imprisoned and uh, in, and exiled in, in in those cases, and um, Roger lost land. So you get loss of land as a result of rebe- rebellion, and, and that does seem to be a uh, a response. But uh, in other cases, yes, it's it's the the kind of case of some some kind of reconciliation rebels were killed in battle as well the the nephew of alfred the great ethel Wald, was was killed in a battle in um uh, 90, uh, 902 um as a as a result of the, the the kind of fallout which which probably saved a a, a great deal of um of uh sort of political concerns, if you like. Uh, uh, You know, it it, it probably got uh, Alfred's son, Edward the Elder, out of somewhat of a hole as to what he would have had to have done had he had he captured his his cousin um so there's a whole load of responses you know the number of different responses there isn't a kind of stock response in in this situation but as i say it kind of depends on the uh the outcome and it depends on whether a uh, a kind of act of political opposition results in um agreement or whether it results in the the, the rebel you know getting away or or, or being captured so um it's you know, it's it's it, it, it's very much part of the whole history of this this period between the 9th and the twelfth centuries.
3: Okay, so finally, Ryan, um, you're a man who studied all this in great depth, as you've as you've outlined here. Um, do, I, I'm wondering. So, as you're travelling around the country, when you're you know maybe when you're driving somewhere and you're and you're 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 moving through the country, do you are are you able to put yourself back into the into the sort of mindset of these people from the 9th through to the 11th 12th centuries are you when you if you go to Beverston near Tetbury in Gloucestershire do you do you sort of think about ah oh, this is this is an assembly site here do you are you are you aware and mindful of all that <laughs>
4: Uh, dear. I, I i wish that i could um you know be able to get fully in the mindset of of these people um although you know to to get fully in the mindset is it's probably to become a, a completely different person altogether isn't it um but that that sort of sense of of trying to try to just get some sense you know just that that sort of inkling of of what uh what might be felt of what might be experienced and uh what might be thought as well is is something that i i try to do it's something that i've been trying to do for for years um i'm not sure i'm any closer now than than i ever was but uh it's it's the kind of process of investigation of thinking and uh you know sometimes on a on a bright summer's day or even a very dull day where you know you you can kind of sometimes feel it and it's it, it, it's as much the the work of imagination as as much as anything else and uh, that that sort of historical imagining is is an important part of the uh, the historical process because you know it, it's by putting these these different uh, sets of thoughts and ideas together that we you know we really advance historical knowledge
3: Professor Ryan Lavelle from uh, the University of Winchester. Thank you very much for that. Your book, Places of Contested Power: Conflict and Rebellion in England and France, eight thirty to eleven fifty, is available now.
4: Thank you very much, Dave. It's a pleasure to speak to you, and thanks for the thanks for those questions.
0: That was Ryan Lavelle. His book on this subject, Places of Contested Power, is available now, published by Boydell and Brewer. Thanks for listening. This episode was produced by Ben Hewitt and Jack Bateman. Join us next on Wednesday when Sarah Kovner will be speaking about Japanese prisoner of war camps.